Please take your Bible in hand this morning and turn with me again to the book of Hebrews as we continue this wonderful journey through a great book together. Hebrews, specifically chapter 2, as we'll be in verse 18 this morning. Far too often, Christianity is presented as if it's a life devoid of problems, a life devoid of trial. False teachers have become rich, profiting on this lie that if you just come to Jesus, all of your problems immediately cease. You'll have prosperity, you'll have happiness. Just come to Jesus and all of your marriage problems will fade away, your health will improve. Your bank account will be full. But if you're a true Christian this morning who's been saved through the true gospel of Jesus Christ, then you know full well that that is not the gospel, and it's, of course, not true. While it's absolutely true that there are many incalculable blessings in both this life and the next that we gain as believers in Christ, they are not the sinful desires of the fallen world. In fact, the truth is when you come to true salvation, it often feels more like going to war than a resort. Suddenly you find that you're more sensitive to sin than ever before. You see sin in places in your life you'd never seen before, and you're more aware of the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the world, and the schemes of the devil. And on the inside, a civil war ensues. You now have a new nature. And that new nature goes to battle with your sinful flesh. And the two duke it out until the Lord brings us home. The truth is, once we're in Christ, we enter into a daily battle with sinful temptation. We, of course, live in a fallen world. And as we watch our culture slide further and further into what Paul calls the suppression of the truth in unrighteousness, if we aren't careful, we can begin to live with this sort of a sense of impending doom over our heads. It can feel like sinful temptations from both inside and outside are increasing by the moment as opportunity for sin becomes more available and more pervasive in and around us. Some days, temptation towards sin can feel so strong, so constant, so overwhelming that we secretly want to curl up in a corner of our closet and hide. And it's not just temptation towards one particular sin, but a whole host of sins that seem to be tailored to our circumstance and our greatest areas of vulnerability. So the question then for us is how can we as Christians ever hope to make any progress in sanctification and the pursuit of holiness when we are daily assailed by temptations from our sinful flesh within and the sinful world outside? Well, in our text this morning, the author of Hebrews comes alongside us with incredible and wonderful news. While temptation will be a constant part of our life in a fallen world, we are not alone in our temptation. We have a helper in temptation who is perfectly qualified and eager to come to our aid to help us to stand firm in the midst of every test. We've seen, of course, that Hebrews is about the superiority of Christ. We've been studying the fact that Jesus, as God's divine son, is undeniably superior to the angels. And this morning, we will close out that section 
We've seen nine proofs of Jesus' superiority to the angels. You see them there on the screen. We've seen that he is our new representative. He's the better Adam. He's represented us in his humiliation and coming and taking on flesh. He's represented us in his exaltation, going to the right hand of the Father. And, of course, he's our representative in his substitutionary death on the cross. We've been looking specifically at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 18. Let's read that text together this morning. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. In verse 10, we saw this wonderful declaration that Christ's suffering was fitting. And we've been looking at this now for a number of weeks. God says it was right, it was fitting within the character of God to bring us to glory through the suffering of his own son. We've seen several reasons for that. First of all, we're a spiritual family. Secondly, he freed us from slavery to Satan and death through his suffering. Thirdly, he helps the redeemed. And fourthly, he made priestly propitiation. Those last two reasons, of course, we studied last week. We learned that Christ is the helper, not of angels, but of the redeemed. And one of the primary ways, the primary way that he has helped us is by the means of propitiation. Remember that key theological term we looked at together that God's wrath, the Father's wrath, has been perfectly satisfied by Christ on the cross. That he not only paid for our sins, he did that, of course. He didn't, not only canceled our sins, but he satisfied. He took the cup of God's wrath and drank it all so that no wrath is left for God's redeemed. That's propitiation. But now, staying in this same line of thought, we come to a fifth and final reason a fifth and final reason why it was right for the Father to bring us to glory through the suffering of the Son, and it is this. He is our help in temptation. He is our help in temptation, verse 18. Verse 18 begins, as many of these verses have, with the word for. Of course, he's not left the larger argument that he's making here, but by beginning with the word for, he brings our attention to a new reason, a fifth reason. Of course, he's just explained that propitiation is the primary way that God helps 
the redeemed. But there's a second crucial way that Jesus Christ helps his people. Not only has he been our representative and identified with us in taking on flesh, he has been our representative in his death, but he's also our representative and has identified with us in temptation. The author says, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered. Notice again the emphasis on Christ. He says, He himself This one, the perfect one, the Son of God who took on human flesh to be our representative, to be the better Adam, to to do the things that Adam could never do, that Adam failed to do. He did them perfectly. This one, this Son, was tempted in that which he has suffered. The idea of Christ being tempted is hard for us to grasp especially when we think of passages like James chapter 1, verse 13, where it says that let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. We might be tempted to say, well, wait a minute, if, if Jesus Christ is fully God, and James says that God cannot be tempted, then are we looking at a contradiction here in Hebrews The answer, of course, is no, absolutely not. When you think about it, there are a lot of things that God can't do that Jesus Christ did. For instance, God cannot die. God cannot be confined to one place. He is omnipresent. God the Father has no physical need for things such as food, clothing, air, shelter, or rest. And yet Jesus did them all. So the reason then that Jesus can identify with us in temptation is not because of his divine nature, but because he took on a human nature. He was fully God, fully man in one person. So when the author says that he identified with us in temptation, he means in his humanity, in his human nature, not his divine nature. There's another special aspect of the fact that he became our representative. He is the better Adam. He's a better Adam in every single way including temptation. To be our true representative, he had to become just like we are. And we've said this over and over again here in Hebrews. Of course, we know from Hebrews 4.15 that him becoming as we are did not include sin. For there he says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. But Don't misunderstand this. The absence of sin in the life of Jesus Christ does not negate the fact that he experienced real temptation. It was a real temptation. The difference, of course, is he never gave in to that temptation over the entirety of his life. But this is a reminder, by the way, that temptation in and of itself is not sin. Sin comes when we yield to that temptation and commit the sin that we're tempted towards, either in thought, word, or deed. But it is not the temptation itself. And that's an important distinction to make. I've had a lot of Christians come to me in, in tears of desperation just beaten down by the battle with sin, feeling as if they're they're, they're worthless, perhaps they're not even saved. And I begin to talk to them, what's the issue? What's wrong? And they begin to describe to me the daily battle with temptation. And I say, well, well, tell me what happens when you're tempted. What do you do when that temptation comes? 
And more than once they've said, well, I, I turned my mind to truth and I, I, I refuse that temptation and do what Christ says to do. I said, well, well friend, that's, that's not defeat. That's victory. And so for us, if, we've, if we have in our minds begun to think that sanctification equals the lack of temptation, oh, we're going to live a joy, joyless life. A life beaten down with the wrong assessment of our progress in the faith. God never promised that the Christian life would be a life apart from temptation, but that he would strengthen us by his grace to resist that temptation. Some people have sadly suggested that because Jesus remained perfect in his temptation and never gave in to that temptation, that he can't really sympathize with us because he wasn't a sinner. Listen to B.F. Westcott and his response to that. This is really wonderful. Sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the temptation to sin, which only the sinless can know in its full intensity. He who falls yields before the last strain. Think of it this way. What Westcott is saying is that Jesus' experience of temptation was not less than ours. It was more. Because we as sinners have given in to sin before sin got as, or the temptation became as strong as it possibly could. Jesus, on the other hand, never gave in. And so the, the enemy had to ratchet up his temptation trying to, to make Jesus sin. He gave him all he had. And Jesus never resisted. So in that sense, Jesus knew temptation to a degree and strength that we have never experienced. But perhaps you're wondering exactly what kind of temptations did Jesus experience in this life? Notice there in verse 18, he says that he was tempted in that which he has suffered. In that which he has suffered. Now, when we think of the suffering of Christ, of course, the chief moment of suffering in the life of our Lord was when he made propitiation on the cross that we've just mentioned back in verse 17. That certainly is the suffering of Christ at its height. But then if we step back and think more broadly, the entirety of the incarnation in one sense was suffering because it was a, it was a condescension. It was humility. It was Jesus humbling himself, taking on humanity adding to his divine nature a full and complete human nature. When we add together the suffering of the cross with the daily suffering that came with living life in a real human body, in a real fallen world, Jesus was exposed to the gamut of sinful temptations that were brought on, of course, by the temptation of Christ and the fallen world around him. But in order to grasp the full weight of this and the rest of the verse, to get, we haven't even gotten to the key point yet. But before we get to the second half of the verse, we have to, to really feel this and understand this. And as we look deeper at the temptation of Christ, what we see is that not only did Jesus experience temptation, but he also experienced all of the physical weaknesses that often cause us to want to justify giving in to temptation. Let me ask you this. What physical weaknesses make you the most susceptible to temptation? For most people, physical hunger, physical pain, fatigue, and lack of sleep 
are at the top of the list of physical weaknesses that make them more susceptible to sin. And when you think about the life of Christ, he experienced every single one of those physical weaknesses to a degree that that none of us has ever experienced, while at the same time experiencing a higher level of temptation than any of us have ever experienced, and yet he remained perfect. I want you to think of two specific examples in the life of Christ in which we see him experiencing physical weakness in extreme measure. The first example, of course, is Jesus in the wilderness when he goes to be tempted by Satan. Matthew chapter 4, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, then he became hungry. I would say so, right? 40 days and 40 nights. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, just think about the physical state that Jesus must have been in after 40 days. This is literal. This is not an allegory. This is literal. 40 days in the desert without a single bite of food. Now, how do you feel after you go one day without eating? Some of you say, I have no idea. (laughs) I've never done that on purpose, right? No idea. But I can tell you how I feel after just skipping breakfast, right? I don't feel very good. I don't feel very good, and I find that I'm, I'm tempted to sin. I become very hungry. I feel the, that sense of the, the tingling feeling of inside of shaking, lightheaded, dizziness, fatigue. Some people get headaches when they don't eat. They, get, they feel the physical weakness, and if it's a prolonged period without food, that physical weakness can become so severe that even basic movements are a challenge. On top of that, the longer that we go without eating, the more our minds are obsessed with the thought of eating. When you read of people who have experienced true salvation or or starvation, such as prisoners of of war or or those who have been in concentration camps, they always talk about the dreams they would have at night about eating delicious food, only to wake up the next morning still so hungry. And yet here's Jesus in the wilderness Not a single bite of food for 40 days and 40 nights. And then the tempter came to him. The the indication of the text is that Satan waited until Jesus was at his physical low. When he would be seemingly most susceptible to the temptations of the devil. And then what's the very first temptation that he dangles in front of Jesus? Food. You could have bread. You could have bread, Jesus, if you would just turn these stones into bread? How often do we justify sinful attitudes such as anger, irritability, or rude speech simply because we're hungry? It's so common we actually have a word for it. We call it hangry, right? People say, I'm hangry, and what they're saying is, I'm now justifying my sin against you because I'm hungry, and everyone's just going to have to deal with it. And yet we have here in Jesus perfection, a level of hunger none of us have ever known. The second example of Jesus experiencing physical weakness to the extreme, of course, is the one we all think of, Jesus on the cross. There's just a snippet of that account, John 19, verses 1 to 5. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. They began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. 
Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Remember that before this physical beating took place, Jesus had spent the entire night without sleep. He was arrested in the evening, brought in. He'd been before different phony courts and trials leading up into that, the morning hours. The process of scourging here that's described in verse 1, of course, and included taking a person and stretching them out and beating them with a whip that had nine tails. In, that, in those tails were, were sharp objects woven in in order to rip the muscles and tendons in the back, exposing sometimes even the internal organs. Roman law allowed for a person to be beaten up to 40 times with this whip. Of course, after that, they took a crown of thorns, shoved it on his head, began slapping him in the face. Other gospel writers say they also made for him a reed that was a, a scepter of mockery, began to hit him over the head with the reed, and oh, after that, they nailed him to a cross. All of that just to say none of us have ever known physical pain and suffering like our Lord, and yet the entire time, even after hours and hours of lifting himself up on those nails with the pain radiating from those nerve endings in his wrists and feet, we see a perfect Savior. The next time you're tempted to believe the lie that your physical weakness makes your sin more justifiable, turn your gaze to Christ. Jesus knew the depths of human weakness, fatigue, hunger, pain, in proportions that we will never experience. But in addition to that, at the same time, he was experiencing the full range of temptations that we do experience. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go into every situation in which Jesus experienced temptation, but I've given you a sampling here just to give you an idea. If you think that somehow Jesus was only tempted for that short time in the wilderness... And then on the cross and everything else in between was, was different than your experience. Think again. Here's some of the things that Jesus experienced. He grew up in a home with sinful siblings and parents. Some of you justify your sin because of your siblings, right? Brothers and sisters. I would be a lot better if he wouldn't get on my nerves. Jesus had sinful siblings, sinful parents. Secondly, he endured disbelief and slander from family from friends, from strangers and enemies. You have a family member, even in your adult life, that just seems to have it out for you. They just won't give you the benefit of the doubt. Jesus knew what that was. Thirdly, he experienced the inconveniences of life in a fallen world. Just the day-to-day -day life, a broken sandal walking on a dusty road, the, the way it takes longer to do things than we think that it should, the, the, the crowds that blocked his path as he was trying to get from one place to another, just the daily inconveniences, the, the traffic jams of, of that century. Fourthly, he endured the personalized temptations of Satan himself. The truth is the vast majority of us never experience direct personal temptation from Satan. Jesus did. Number five, he was tempted by Satan to twist Scripture to his personal advantage. 
Never justified sin because you're taking a scripture out of context or using it in a way that it wasn't meant to. Remember, in the second temptation that Satan gives to Jesus, it's Satan that quotes the scripture to Jesus, trying to tempt him to justify a sinful decision on a misuse of a passage. Number six, he suffered all forms of physical weakness. As we know, physical weakness becomes a temptation for us because we want out, we want relief. Seven, he rest, his rest was disrupted by those who needed his help. If you ever come to the end of a day, you're, you're, you're super tired, you're, you want nothing else to do except to lay down and rest. You think you've completed all of your tasks for the day, and so you take your leisure only to hear a knock at the door, I need you. Oh, this was Jesus' life all the time. Many times, Jesus, it says specifically that Jesus says, let us go to the other side and rest, only to get to the other side, and the crowds have beat him there, and they're ready for more ministry, sometimes wanting food. This was Jesus' life. Number eight, he was mocked, betrayed, misunderstood, hated, and conspired against. His words were maliciously twisted, and used against him. Ever had somebody say that you said something that you either didn't say or surely didn't mean the way they're saying that you said it? Number 10, he submitted his will to the Father at great personal cost. Remember him there in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. Even though it would mean extreme suffering for, him, uh, for, himself, for himself, Jesus said, not my will but yours be done. He was spit on, beaten, blasphemed, tortured, publicly humiliated, and murdered. He was born under false accusations of immorality and illegitimacy that followed him into adulthood. Even in, in his earthly ministry as an adult, we see whispers of, of his strange beginnings. We, we don't know where you came from. We don't know who your father is. He was abandoned by those he loved and ministered to the most. Ever had that happen? A person that you've poured into, that you've loved, that you've prayed for, that you've ministered to, that you've sacrificed for, walks away from you, perhaps even the faith. He was betrayed to his enemies by one in his inner circle. And lastly, he was rejected and crucified by the very people he came to save. Did Jesus know temptation? He knew temptation. This is just a short sampling of the many types of temptations that Jesus endured during his earthly life. I've gone through those just to help us understand when it says that he's able to identify with us, he's able to identify with us. He lived a real human life. And all of this temptation and physical weakness has qualified Jesus to play a very special role in the life of every Christian. And this brings us to the second half of the verse. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. The author says it was fitting for the Father to bring us to glory through the suffering of the Son because through that suffering it has qualified and equipped Jesus to come alongside us in this earthly life and to keep us from temptation. When we put this verse together with verse 17 from last week, we see clearly that through the cross, Jesus freed us not only from the penalty of our sin, but from its power. 
in propitiation. He paid for our sin. He took the wrath for our sin. And even now, he helps us in our temptation to live apart from, out from under the power of sin. Jesus is not just a benevolent outsider who comes to offer a helping hand. He's an experienced veteran when it comes to temptation. Think of it this way. Picture with me a young 18-year-old private in the Marine Corps who's just finished basic training. While he was in basic training, our country declared war on another nation. And upon graduation from basic training, he's told that in less than three months' time, he will be shipped out and he's going to be on the front lines in one of the, the hottest places of conflict. His heart begins to race with anticipation. On the one hand, he's excited to use the skills that he's learned to to serve his country. But on the other hand, he's terrified of the terrors of war he knows must await him. His officers tell him that for those who desire, there are counselors available to help prepare them mentally for the battle that is to come. And so he goes to the counseling office and he discovers he has two options for counselors. The first counselor is a civilian with a Ph.D. in the art and strategies of ancient and modern warfare. He is, in fact, the greatest living expert on the history of every conflict the United States has ever been involved in. He's published multiple books, ranging from everything from the the key strategic decisions of World War II to the lasting effects of PTSD. The second counselor is a 40-year-old Marine sergeant who only has a high school education. He enlisted in the military a month after graduating from high school. But in his military career, he did four tours in Iraq, spent months in active combat in some of the hottest areas of conflict. On one excursion, he led a team of 15 men out on a routine mission, but only came back with three. Yet after experiencing such difficulty and traumatic experiences, he has returned not only alive, but mentally stable. Which of the two counselors do you think this 18-year-old boy wants to talk to? Well, here's the amazing news for us as Christians. In the person of Jesus Christ, we have both. We have both. We have the God-man. In fact, we have not only the greatest living expert on all things, we have the creator of all things, the one who actively sustains all things. He understands at a higher level all that is than any of us could ever imagine understanding. And yet at the same time in his humanity, he lived it. He understands it experientially. He walked through it, and he came out on the other side, having never once given in to temptation. And now that person, that Jesus says, I'm here to give you help. Do you see the rich gift that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ? But in order for us to understand exactly how he comes to our aid in temptation, I need to tell you just a little bit more about this word itself, the word tempt or temptation. Because this Greek word, the same Greek word, can be translated as either to tempt or to test. Here's the definition of the Greek word itself. It means to endeavor to discover the nature or character of something by testing. So we might translate it as try or to make trial of or put to the test. 
It can be used both positively and negatively depending on the context. So if something is being presented before a person with good intentions of of showing and proving the genuineness of their faith, it's translated as a test. But if something is put in front of someone to cause them to stumble and to fall into sin, so it's maliciously presented before them, we call it temptation. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign over all things. So he ordains trials and difficulties in our lives, but always and only for good purposes. In this sense, God does test us, but God tests us for the strengthening and proving of our faith that we might grow in holiness. This is why we see things like James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That word trials there in verse 2 is the same Greek word that's translated as temptation or tempt here in our text. When it refers to God bringing a trial to test us to prove the genuineness of our faith, a positive outcome, it's translated as test. This is why James would go on to say in verse 12 of chapter 1 that blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he's been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. God's desire is to see our faith strengthened, to see our faith proven through trials. But then James goes on to explain where temptation does come from. If God's not tempting us to sin when he allows a trial in our life, then where does that temptation come from? James says in verse 13, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted... When he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. James clearly states that God is not responsible for our temptation. He's perfect in his holiness. He hates sin. He would never want us to sin or tempt us to sin. Instead, verse 14 explains that temptations come because of our sinful flesh, the strong desires or lusts within us that see that outward temptation and we want it. We want to go for that temptation. That's where the temptation for sin comes from. But here's the crucial point. Here's why I've brought this up. I want us to understand that in the exact same situation, the same life circumstance, you can have at the same time God providing a test that he intends for the proving of your faith, for the strengthening of your faith, for for, for you to be confirmed in your faith, And on the other hand, the flesh, the world, and the devil seizing upon that and trying to twist it for their own purposes to tempt you to sin. One circumstance, two different motives in that circumstance. This is why Joseph would say to his brothers, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. He says, God most certainly ordained this difficulty in my life. He meant it for good purposes. It was you that meant it for evil. And that's what we see in our own situation. Now, as we put this together with Hebrews 2.18, we see that Jesus comes to our aid as one qualified to help us so that we can resist the temptation of the enemy while simultaneously passing the good test of the Father so that our sanctification is furthered as we grow in faith 
and endurance. That brings us to an all-important question. How does Jesus help us in temptation? It's one thing for us just to know that he does, that he's qualified to help us. But what does the Bible say about the means that Jesus uses to give us this aid in temptation? Well, we're going to boil this down to three ways that Christ helps us in temptation. The first help is intercession. Intercession. We see this in Romans 8, verses 31 to 34. Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. You hear that? Who also intercedes for us. Do you understand, Christian, that right now, Jesus Christ is at this very moment at the right hand of the Father. And one of the primary things that he does there for us is to intercede face-to-face with the Father on our behalf. He prays for you this morning, if you're in Christ, in the very ear of the Father. And he doesn't pray from a theoretical knowledge, but from experience of real knowledge of knowing what you're going through, of knowing what it feels like to be under the trials and stresses of life, to know what it feels like to be tempted by sin. He understands what that is, and he prays for you in the ear of the Father with that full knowledge. You might ask in response, well, I wonder, what kinds of things does he pray? What's he praying for me? You don't really have to wonder, because we have an example of that in John 17. On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed in front of his disciples for his disciples so that they could hear. They could have this privilege of hearing the private prayer of Christ to the Father. What kinds of things does he pray? Let's look together. John 17, beginning in verse 6. Jesus speaking to the Father, I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they've come to know that everything you've given me is from you. For the words which... You gave me, I've given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came from you and that they believe that you sent me. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you've given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I've been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I've come to you. Holy Father, Keep them in your name, the name which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished with the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have joy, my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world even as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. 
They're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Christian, do you want to know what Jesus prays for you in the ear of the Father? Obviously, we can't know everything he prays for us, but we can make some implications from this passage. When he sees you there in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the test, in the midst of the storm, in the dark shadow of the valley of death, when the weakness of your flesh is pushed to its limits, he's there in the Father's ear and he prays, Oh, Father, keep them from the evil one. Oh, God, keep them in the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word, Father, is truth. Help them conquer this test. Prove the genuineness of the faith you've given to them. Let the world see your glory on display through them as they hold fast to the gospel in the midst of this temptation. Christian, you in your darkest moments may secretly wonder if God hears your prayers. But surely you would not be so bold as to suggest that he doesn't hear the prayers of his own son. The son prays for you. How does he help? He prays. He intercedes for us. In the midst of our temptation, regardless of how you feel, you have to remember he's there and he prays for me. But not only is he praying for us, physically removed there in the ear of the Father, but he also helps us in another way through indwelling. Help number two, indwelling. Galatians 2.20, Paul rejoices, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul says, in coming to Christ, I've been radically transformed. I've been made new. I have a new nature. I have Christ living in me. And I live now by faith in him. Notice the assurance of Christ in him for Paul did not come from a, a mystical feeling. It did not come from some sense of overwhelming emotion. It came by faith. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. Where the spirit of Christ dwells, Christ dwells himself. And so Jesus is not only physically at the right hand of the Father, praying and interceding in the ear of the Father, but through the Holy Spirit who indwells every Christian, he is in you. He's there to help, a very present help in times of trouble, as the psalmist says. But not only that, thirdly, he helps us by means of inspiration. By that, I mean through the inspired words of Scripture. In the Scriptures, Jesus has given us a treasure trove of help in times of temptation. There in his high priestly prayer in John 17, as we read, he identifies that it's through the Word or through truth that we are sanctified, and the Word of God is that truth. And so he's given us the means of our sanctification here in the Scriptures. 
One of the ways that Jesus helps us through the gift of the inspired scriptures is by leaving us a lasting witness of how he himself persevered through temptation. We have a witness in Matthew chapter 4 of exactly how Jesus defeated sin. We're just going to read through these verses quickly together. Matthew chapter 4, this is the account of his temptation in the wilderness. Verse 1, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he'd fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone." Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Now, this is a passage that is exceptionally rich. We don't have near the time to, to dive into the, the glories that are here, but I just want you to see one quick thing from these verses. I want you to see the method that Jesus used to battle temptation. All three times, he does exactly the same thing. And, and I want you to see that this is Jesus living a real human life. This is a pattern that we are commanded to follow in Scripture as well. What does he do? Here's the pattern. Error is presented as temptation. Jesus corrects the error with truth and chooses obedience to the truth instead of sin. Now, I hope that sounds strikingly familiar. Because if you were here when we went through Colossians, we hammered home this point over and over again. This is what Jesus is doing here is exactly what the New Testament says that every Christian must do when they are tempted. We put off renew our mind, and we put on. When the temptation comes, we recognize it as error and as sin. We put it off. We bring our mind back to the truth of what God says, and then we choose to walk in the truth. And we do it over and over and over again. We see the pattern of Jesus Christ himself doing perfectly what he calls us now to do with his help. But in addition to that, not only does Jesus give us in the scriptures his example but he gives us real, tangible weapons of our warfare. The weapons of your warfare are here in this book. If you want to fight temptation, you have to use the right weapon. Let me just give you a quick sampling, a very quick sampling of just a, a, a little tip of the iceberg of the help that we have in the scriptures when it comes to battling temptation. First of all, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This wonderful truth that no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, 
so that you'll be able to endure it. This wonderful enduring promise that we do not have to be overcome by temptation, that we're not going through something that's abnormal that no other person has experienced. It's common to man, and God will be faithful to provide a way of escape. But what about if you're tempted towards anger? Proverbs 17, 27 says, He who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. You pull out Proverbs 17, 27. The temptation towards anger comes, and you say, no, you put that off, and you cut it down with the word of God and say, this is the truth of what God says, and then I'm going to walk in it. What if you deal with pride? Proverbs 3, 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So the temptation comes. A comment is made. Something happens, and you feel pride well up with your heart. You cut it down. You put it off and say, no, this is what the scriptures say, and then you walk in it. What if you deal with uh, temptation towards lust? Proverbs 5, verses 3 to 4. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. So the temptation comes. Uh, a little notification pops up on your device or your screen. And you say, no, I'm not going there. Because no matter how good it may look on the surface, it's like a snake under the surface. It's poison for my soul. I cut it down with the sword of God's word, and I walk in obedience. Don't you see? Everything that you need for life and godliness is given for us. We've been made new. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the scriptures. Take up the sword of God's word and fight. That is the application. Fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. Away with the excuses the, the, the selfish, woe is me excuses of it's, it's hard and life is difficult. Take up the sword and fight. We have on our side the Lord Jesus Christ, the fullness of the God-man. And he says, I am qualified, eager, and ready to come and give you the help that you need. All that's left to do is to love him, to take up the sword of Scripture, and to fight. Love the Scripture. Meditate upon the scripture, memorize the scripture, speak of it in your conversations, and pull it out like a flaming sword to cut down every error and every temptation to sin. This is the Christian life. We are not alone in our temptation. Don't ever give in to the lies that enter your mind that make you think that you're the only one, you're the only one that deals with this kind of thought pattern, you're the only one that deals with this kind of. of no, you're not. It's common to man. Take up the sword of God's word and cut it down. What else do we need if we have Jesus Christ interceding for us in the ear of the Father? We have him indwelling us through the person of the Holy Spirit. And we have his inspiration in the scriptures. What else could we possibly need? Christian, if you are beat down, run over by temptation this morning, take courage. Take heart. We have the helper, the Lord Jesus Christ, who meets us in our time of need. But maybe you're here this morning, and the truth is you don't really battle against sin. The truth is you're just run over by it. You're enslaved to it. Maybe you've tried some, some worldly resources, some worldly tricks, some self-help resources to try to make things better, but you just keep going right back to the same old thing. Well, it may be that you're not even 
in the Lord Jesus Christ, the first thing that you need to understand is that you need to come to this one who is our help. And you need to take advantage of his propitiation, his satisfaction of the wrath of God, which means you have to understand you are a sinner. And because of your sin, you're separated from a holy God. You're worthy and deserving of his punishment for your sin. But the scripture says that he sent his perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that you and I failed to live. And then he gave that perfect life on the cross as a sacrifice for sin and rose again from the dead on the third grave, proving who he was and that the Father had accepted his sacrifice. The scriptures say if you will humble yourself this morning and you will turn from your sin and repentance and faith to Jesus Christ as your only hope of salvation, you will be saved. Not only from the penalty that looms over you because of your sin, but from its power over your daily life. I'm not saying you won't experience temptation and difficulties. I'm not saying you'll experience instant perfection. But I am saying you'll experience real forgiveness with a new nature and ability by the power of God to fight against that sin and increasingly win and one day he will bring us home and he will make us perfect in our character as he is perfect don't waste this opportunity to turn to such a good savior as this and Christians may we not believe the lies that we are helpless and weak and powerless in the battle with sin when we have such a great savior who comes to our help let's pray together Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for such an encouraging text that reminds us that you don't just save us and then leave us to figure things out, to, to try to fight our own battles, to, to figure out the war with the flesh. You save us, you equip us with the truth of Scripture, with the gift of the Spirit. Even now you pray for us, you intercede for us, you plead your own blood for us. Lord Jesus, help us to fight the good fight of faith, as Paul said. Help us to run the race so as to win the prize. We pray, Father, that you would help us as a church to be faithful to you, to love you, to live out the implications of the gospel and to share the gospel with others that they too might come to know newness of life, true spiritual life. We thank you for your word and for its encouragement today. May we live in light of it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.